Evidence and Answers. Do the recent discoveries of science strengthen the case for Darwinian evolution, or do they point even more compellingly to an intelligent creator? Are Christianity and science enemies, or are they allies? This was the theme of this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference, hosted by the Pacific Apologetics Center, and your host, right here on Evidence and Answers, Dr. Pat Zucrin. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, and is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Pat's opening message for this conference was why I believe in God. Join us today as Pat presents four compelling reasons for the existence of an intelligent creator, right here on Evidence and Answers. Dr. Patrick Zucaran. Well, good evening. Well, we thank you for being here tonight. We thank you for braving the traffic and the parking to be here for our eighth annual Hawaii Apologetics Conference. You know, I grew up in a Japanese family. I had an eclectic religious background. My family heritage was steeped in the Japanese Buddhist tradition. I also gained a great respect for the Hawaiian animistic religion and the gods and the spirits that went along with it. And I also went to a liberal Episcopalian school where I was taught a very liberal form of Christianity. Well, after studying the various religions, I came to conclude that they were based not on historical facts, but on legend and folklore. And I eventually came to reject all the religions as simply mythology. But as an atheist, I came to a horrifying and dark conclusion. If God does not exist, then we live in a universe void of meaning, void of hope, void of any significance. If God does not exist, we're simply products of chance, and thus there was no intended purpose for our existence. We live for a brief moment in time facing the inevitable future of our annihilation and extinction. Eventually, mankind will become extinct, and as the universe continues to expand, it's going to use up and run out of energy and reach a state of final entropy. And one day, the universe will also die and come to an end. When one carefully considers the implications, then, of atheism, one must conclude that life is ultimately meaningless and absurd, for all things end in extinction and annihilation. The work of the scientist who discovers new form of energy to better the living conditions of mankind, to the doctor who fights to cure disease and extend life, to the politician who fights for peace, to the soldier who gives his life for freedom, all their works ultimately are for naught in a universe destined for extinction. Ultimately then, there is no purpose for our existence, no hope, no basis for morality. In a radio discussion I had with an atheist who hosts one of the most popular atheist websites, when I brought that position up, he responded to me by saying, well, Pat, that's just simply your opinion and the opinion of Christians. To which I said, no, Luke, I'm not stating my opinion. I'm simply repeating what you atheist scholars, what your own atheist scholars have been saying for centuries. And he asked, like who? And I said, well, one of your most outspoken atheist philosophers, Bertrand Russell, 
who said this in his book, Why I'm Not a Christian. Man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That is origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. In a communist country in East Asia, I was speaking to a group of college students and the students were shocked at what they had read. And for the first time, they came to realize the implications of their atheist worldview. And as I moved on to the next slide, they all said, wait, 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 go back, go back to that slide. And they wanted to go back to that slide so they could read the slide more carefully. And as I looked upon their horrified faces, they were carefully reading and pondering the words of Bertrand Russell. Dr. Will Provine, biology professor at Cornell University, also echoes the same sentiments. He says, if Darwinism is true, ultimately means there is no God. And if there is no God, there is no life after death. No absolute foundation for right and wrong. No ultimate meaning for life. No free will. Few understand the horrific conclusions of atheism. But if this is indeed the fate of all men and women, if atheism is true, we live in a universe void of significance, void of meaning, void of hope. We must realize the futility of life in which all ends in death and extinction. Well, I soon discovered few atheists were willing to accept this fate, and even fewer could consistently live out their conclusion. So we come to one of two conclusions. Either life is ultimately meaningless, and we live in a cold, dark universe with only one certainty, our extinction and the extinction of mankind, and that our lives do not have ultimate meaning and significance. However, if God does exist, if there is something beyond the grave, then our lives do have meaning, and there is hope. But this would be tied in to a creator who created and designed the universe and us with a purpose. Well, where does the evidence point? I discovered there's strong evidence that points to an intelligent creator. And tonight in this session, I can only give you a brief sketch overview of these evidences. Now, the first evidence is that the universe has a beginning. The beginning of the universe demands a sufficient cause of the universe. And it's the argument from first cause, and it goes like this. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. This is the basic law of causality. The universe has a beginning. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. And we must identify what that cause is. Now, today, the vast majority of scientists agree that the universe is not eternal, as they thought for several centuries, but it has a beginning. There are several scientific discoveries that confirm this. Albert Einstein sought to discover how the universe maintains its posture without collapsing in on itself due to the force of gravity. 
And to his regret, his mathematical equations revealed that the universe does not collapse on itself because the universe is expanding. He discovered in his equation the theory of relativity. If the universe is expanding, then it exploded into being. Therefore, the universe was not eternal, but it had a beginning. Einstein's theory of relativity, in theory, demonstrated that the universe is not eternal, but it has a beginning. And what Einstein demonstrated in theory has been recently confirmed by the discoveries of science. The discoveries of the red shift by Edwin Hubble, as galaxies move up farther apart, they become redder, and so our universe is expanding. The radiation echo, or the radiation afterglow, discovered by Penzias and Wilson, discovered the afterglow that comes from a huge atomic explosion. The ratio of elements that exist in the universe. The second law of thermodynamics, that the universe is running out of usable energy, all point to the conclusion that the universe has a beginning. And now the vast majority of those in science agree the universe is not eternal, but the universe has a beginning. One of the most brilliant minds of our time, Dr. Stephen Hawking, writes this. Almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Atheist and Nobel Prize winning physicist Steven Weinberg wrote this. In the beginning there was an explosion. Not an explosion like those familiar on Earth, but an explosion which occurred simultaneously. Everywhere, filling all space from the beginning with every particle of matter rushing apart from every other particle. At the Big Bang, time, matter, and energy all came into being. The universe arose from nothing. As stated in the words of Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Since the universe has a beginning, the universe has a cause. And we must identify what is the most reasonable cause for the existence and beginning of this universe. Along with the law of causality comes the law of cause and effect. Whatever created the universe is greater than the universe, for every effect has a cause, and no effect is greater than its cause. Since the universe has a beginning, it must have a cause that is greater than it. When the universe began, time, matter, and energy exploded into being. Whatever created time, matter, and energy is eternal, all-powerful, all-wise, and omnipresent, present everywhere. And God is a very reasonable cause. The second evidence comes from the, what we see as design in the universe, from microbiology to astronomy, from the microscope to the telescope. Evidence of design is all around us. This is the design argument. And it goes like this. Every design has a designer. The universe has highly complex design. Therefore, the universe has a designer. Creation every day points its finger to the creator. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 22. Paul expounds upon this. 
Here's a famous example. Suppose you crashed in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you survived and you managed all alone to make it to what appears to be an uninhabited island. Wherever you look, there does not appear to be anyone there. However, the next day, you get up and you walk along the beach and you discover a watch in the sand. What would you immediately assume? There's someone else on this island who dropped this watch. No one would assume the wind, the rain, the lightning, and the natural forces put together the watch. There's just too much complexity and design. We would immediately assume there's someone else on this island that dropped this watch. Now the components of the watch are all here upon this earth. But none of us would assume natural forces could put something so complex together. There is too much complexity and order. As we study the universe, it shows that there is evidence of a divine watchmaker. From the microscope to the telescope, there's evidence of design. Now, our speakers who will follow me will expound on a lot of these things, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on this. In the last 40 years, scientists have discovered that the universe is extremely fine-tuned for it to exist and for it to sustain any life. The forces that sustain the universe are delicately balanced and sit on a razor's edge. For example, the force of gravity is precisely tuned so that the universe expands at just the right rate. If the force of gravity were just a fraction weaker, the universe would expand faster. But then, matter would disperse too quickly so that none of it would clump enough to form planets and galaxies. If the force of gravity were a fraction stronger, the universe would expand too slowly and matter would clump so effectively the universe would collapse into a super dense lump before any solar type stars or galaxies could form. Astronomer Hugh Ross states, the expansion rate cannot differ by more than one part in 10 to the 55th power. That's how precisely tuned the forces in our universe are. When it comes to the microscope, microbiology has made remarkable discoveries of design. One of the most powerful is DNA. What makes DNA such a compelling evidence of design is that an incredible amount of information is contained in a single cell. There's 1,200 to 2,000 letters or bases that are needed to build just one protein. It's highly improbable that a single protein molecule could form by chance. Dr. Stephen Meyer states that the probability of the right amino acids forming the precise sequence needed to form one protein molecule is one chance in a hundred thousand trillion, 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 trillion. That's a 10 with 125 zeros behind it to form one protein. He further states that this would be the odds for just one protein molecule. A minimally complex cell needs between three and 500 protein molecules. 
Dr. Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, a man who probably knows more about genetics than anyone, stated at the completion of his work of mapping out the entire human genome, he wrote this, it's a happy day for the world. It is humbling and awe-inspiring for me that we caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book, previously only known to God. Even outspoken atheists, the leader of the new atheist movement, Richard Dawkins, states, the machine code of the genes is uncannily computer-like. The pages of a molecular biology journal might be interchanged with those of a computer engineering journal. Now, in comparing DNA to a computer program, Microsoft's CEO Bill Gates stated that DNA is far, far, far more complex than any software ever created. We would not assume that the Microsoft Windows program was the result of a monkey banging on a computer and he just got lucky. In fact, those of you in the computer field and my friends in computer programming spend hours studying programs looking for the one or two digit error that keeps a program from working properly. One or two digits out of sequence in a very complex program can ruin the system. The sequencing in DNA code is even more complex and precise in its sequencing. What best accounts for this design? Chance or an intelligent designer? I will say it's more reasonable to conclude an intelligent designer. Scientists, both Christian and non-Christian, are beginning to realize the evidence for an intelligent designer is quite compelling. The more we discover through the microscope and the telescope, more and more it's beginning to point to intelligent design. Here's some quotes from men who don't buy into a Christian worldview. Dr. Robert Griffiths, winner of the Heinemann Award in Mathematics, the highest award given in the mathematical sciences, stated, if we need an atheist to debate, I go to the philosophy department. The physics department isn't much use. Agnostic astronomer, Dr. Robert Jastrow, award-winning astronomer, writes this, for the scientist who has lived by faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. A third line of evidence is found in our intuitive sense of right and wrong, the moral law that is written upon our hearts. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 2. We all ascribe to a universal moral law. Every individual has a moral understanding of right and wrong. There are some moral principles we begin with that all mankind understands and accepts as true. Murder, rape, adultery, stealing is wrong in every culture. Those who do not view these actions as wrong are considered morally handicapped and unable to function in society. These individuals we place in institutions. Now a universal moral law points to a moral law giver. The argument goes like this. Every law has a lawgiver. 
There is an absolute moral law that we all ascribe to. Therefore, there is an absolute moral lawgiver. You see, morality is not connected with nature. It's connected with personhood. Nature doesn't demonstrate a moral conscience. When a tsunami comes, it doesn't just wipe out criminals. It wipes out men, women, and children. The animal kingdom does not demonstrate any kind of moral conscience. A lion will kill a baby as it will an adult. The fact that we can identify evil and what is unjust reveals an understanding in all people of a universal moral law. C.S. Lewis stated this, As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has come to some idea of what a straight line is. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? You know, in a radio discussion I had with an atheist, I said, you know, he asked me the question. He said, if God exists, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And I said, would you define evil for me? And he didn't want to. You know, and I said, how do you define evil? Because if something is objectively evil, there's an absolute moral standard of good from which we have departed. Where did that absolute moral standard of good come from? It must come from a moral lawgiver. Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest philosophers, after criticizing the traditional proofs for God, in the end stated this, Two things fill my mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe. The oftener and more steadily we reflect on them, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. A universal moral law points to a moral law giver. Fourth, the God who created the universe has invaded our creation in the person of Jesus Christ. The Gospels are a very accurate historical work written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And we have quite compelling evidence for that. Therefore, they are connected with first-generation eyewitness accounts. The early date shows the testimony of the disciples of Jesus were carefully scrutinized and verified by the eyewitnesses who were still alive who had witnessed these events. Had the Gospels been fiction, there are just too many eyewitnesses who could have verified these accounts as false, and the Gospel accounts would not have lasted. Now, Jesus claimed to be the divine Son of God and confirmed his claim through his miraculous, sinless life and resurrection from the dead. Jesus, who claimed to be the divine Son of God, prophesied and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead, something no other man or person in history has ever done. In the miracles that Jesus did, he demonstrated authority over all, every realm of creation. And Jesus fulfilled a miraculous number of prophecies. No other person in the history of the world has such a legacy of fulfilled prophecy as Jesus Christ. Now, the life of Christ culminates in the resurrection and there's several established facts regarding the resurrection that 
scholars are agreed upon. Christian, non-Christian, liberal, conservative, we're agreed upon these facts. These are the minimal facts. First, Jesus died by means of Roman crucifixion. Not only do we have the New Testament, which is a first century account written by eyewitnesses or their very close associates, Roman and Jewish historians confirm a historical Jesus and that he died by means of Roman crucifixion. This concludes part one of Pat's message entitled, Why I Believe in God, given at this year's Hawaii Apologetics Conference. Our theme this year was Christianity and Science, Enemies or Allies, and featured speakers included Dr. Fazal Rana and Dr. Paul Nelson. If you would like to hear all of the seminars from this year's conference, log on at evidenceandanswers.org, and you can listen and purchase all the sessions from Pat and his guests. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by Pat's teaching, please support him in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers Radio Show is a ministry of the Pacific Apologetics Center. Join us again next week as Pat presents part two of this message entitled, Why I Believe in God here on the radio or on the web for more evidence and answers.